What we're really trying to to glean and gain out of this is what John tells us about what Jesus Christ was doing when he came to this planet, when, when God himself enveloped himself in flesh, fully God, fully man, why did he come? And in the end of it, <coughs> the thing that he came to do was to transform us, to make us different. It wasn't just about saving us. It wasn't just about fire insurance. It wasn't just about trying to make our life better because he knew life doesn't get better unless we have transformation from the inside. That's what he's trying to do. And that's what John is speaking to. And so with it, you'll see this. There's some people that just flat out, they reject Jesus. They want nothing to do with Jesus. But the the other one in there that is really interesting to watch is the two types of believers you see. There's some people that follow Jesus and they're enamored with Jesus and they're excited about Jesus. But the thing that always happens to them is if they don't understand why Jesus came, they walk away. And I'll tell you what, it breaks my heart as a pastor over and over to watch people that come, they get excited about Jesus, they, they, they supposedly embrace Jesus, but then after a while you see they're just gone. And in the end of it, they didn't understand who Jesus truly was because if you understand who Jesus truly is, you don't let go. You will not let go of him. He, the way John talks about it, he's life. And then there's this other group of people, and you're going to see this in the text we're going to be in. You can go ahead and open to John 6, but there's this other group of people that truly see him as the Son of God for who he truly is, and they embrace him wholeheartedly. And so go ahead and open your Bibles to John 6. Let me pray for us before we get going. And then uh, we'll start diving into this. I am, I am so excited to teach this today. It's probably one of the most difficult texts in all of John. Um, so we're going to spend not only this week, but next week on it, just because it is a difficult text. Jesus says some stuff in here. I'll be honest with you. If I would have been there, I would have been like, what? So that's why I'm excited about it. I can't wait for us to go, what? So let's pray. Jesus, thank you for everyone that's here. Thank you for what you've done in our lives Father, if there's anybody in here that doesn't know you today, I pray that today they would see you for who you are. They would see Jesus completely and clearly as God in the flesh, as King of kings, as Lord of lords, as the Son of God, and that, Father, in that, that they might embrace him wholeheartedly. God, I know there's also people in here struggling in all kinds of different ways, and today would Jesus be so lifted up and so powerful that we start to view our circumstances through the eyes of the creator of the universe. God, would you help me to speak today? Would your spirit guide me? I want to say words that please you and that move hearts, Father. And so that's what I'm asking you. Would you please today do what none of us can? In your precious name we pray, amen. Well, look, go with me real quick. I'm going to go to the very end of what I'm going to teach on just to kind of take a glance here real quick at at what the two types of people I'm talking about. So I want you first to look at John 6 and look at verse 60, all right? Here's what he says. He says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? In other words, the things you just talked about, Jesus, they're difficult to listen to. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? In other words, what if you actually saw me accurately for who I truly am? He says, it's the spirit who gives gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the father granted him or unless it's granted him by the father. And look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned away and no longer walked. I'll tell you what, that is probably one of the most disheartening verses in all of John. I think just because as a pastor and watching high school kid after high school kid when I was a high school pastor and different people, these people you pray with, you talk with, and the more and more they, Jesus begins to reveal himself to them, all of a sudden they come to this point where they're like, no thanks. It breaks your heart. And I think at the end of it, there's, there's the reason is, and I brought... Um, I brought Jesus today. <laughs> Took me forever to find this. I think in the end of it, it's because this is how they view Jesus. A little cartoon, tiny little figure. And so for some of them, right, they look at Jesus and, and they think, oh, Jesus is here to make my life better. And so they embrace Jesus and hold him in. And in the middle of all of it, all of a sudden, he doesn't make these life, their life better all the time. So they kind of put him in their pocket for a little while. It's like, all of a sudden, when things get bad, it's like, Jesus, where are you? 
Jesus. That's one type of person. Another person that I, I've seen oftentimes is the person that, that kind of uses him in a way that, uh, of escaping hell. I remember as a kid growing up, I didn't want to go to hell. And so I would sit there, you know, and I would listen in a wand in these different places, kind of the, the little times I was in church. And, and so I bought into this Jesus that I was hoping that at the end of it, when I stood in front of him one day, I could go, here's my fire insurance. There you go. Or even there's some people I've watched as I've spoken a lot, especially high school and college things. They love to come in and they love to have this experience. They love to come in and have the music. And so in other words, what Jesus is is a once a time fix where they come in and they, this Jesus thing is great. And then they put him in their pocket and go live however else they want the rest of the week. And then when they come back around again, it's like, as if Jesus was a joint. I think there's other people, for some of them, it's just the culture I grew up in. And the reason that so many high school students, I believe, walk away is because this is the Jesus we give them. He's not the Jesus that was the creator of the universe. He's not the Jesus that created stars that burn at 250,000 degrees Fahrenheit. He's not the Jesus that's to be worshipped. He's not the Jesus that's conquering sin and Satan and death and all these other things on this planet that truly cause us problems He's just Jesus. Hey, kids. And it's like, really? And this is what Jesus is going to go after today in John 6, is their view of who he really is. What he's after in a dynamic way is, is he's going to confront these people. He's already dealt with the Sadducees. The Sadducees have been there. The Pharisees then came in and he dealt with them. And now he's going to kind of go to the common man, the common people, and he's going to confront their view of who he really is. Because for some of them, they saw him in one light. And I think it's all the time in all of our lives. In a weird way, we build a Jesus that we want to follow. And Jesus has to look back at us and go, I don't care what image you have in your head. It's not about your image. It's about who I really am. And so in John 6, that's what he's going to do is he's going to come into this group of people and he's going to make sure that they understand clearly who he is. Okay, so that's what we're going to be doing today. He's going to come in and identify that. Now, <clears throat> if you go back in John, look at verse 22, and we'll kind of start to build this case about who Jesus is. Now, I'm going to, for those of you freaking out that I'm not doing 16 through 21 of Jesus walking on water, I'll get there. But let's first kind of deal with what's, what's happening here inside of why did these people reject him. And so let's just kind of deal with, with these different reasons. So in verse 22, it reads this. On the next day, this was after Jesus fed 5,000. This was after the night in which he walked on water. The crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. In other words, people heard about it, so they got in their boats quick and they came to where they thought Jesus was. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves then got into boats and went to Capernaum because they must have heard Jesus tell the disciples, go off to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So here's what's happening. There's all these people, and they just eaten so well the night before. And I don't know if you've ever had just one of those meals that you just ate a lot the night before, and all you can think of is when you're sitting around at night, it's just, I can't wait to go to bed. And in their head, what they're thinking is, and we got the meal ticket still with us. We still got Jesus. And so when I wake up tomorrow morning and I'm hungry, more food. So they wake up the next morning, and all of a sudden, you can imagine, all of a sudden, everybody starts stretching, and they're like, oh, I'm hungry. Where's Jesus? Thinking somehow Jesus is out there now, miraculously cooking up some eggs and bacon, you know, going, hey, good morning. Glad you're here. Sunny side up or over easy, which do you want? And all of a sudden, they look around, and it's like, hey, where's Chef Jesus? Have you seen him? I don't know where he's at. So in the middle of all of it, they go and they get into boats and they say, oh, I heard the disciples say something. How did he sneak away? And even look at verse 26. They even say that. Or verse 25. It says, when they found him on the other side, so they got in their boats and they went after him. And they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? Man, Rabbi, we got something going on here, you and us. We got a thing. We follow you around and you feed us. 
And we need to talk about this. If you ever leave without us knowing, we need to know these things so that we can come along with you, man. We're, we're your new band of followers. We're the people that are going to chill with you. And so in the middle of all of it, <laughs> here you have these people, and they're thinking that's what Jesus is for. Now, we can sit there and mock them a little bit because in our culture, man, you know this, we can just get our hands on food like that, can't we? Man, yesterday I was sitting there and I was, I was uh, uh, watching a little bit of the NCAA tournament and all of a sudden a commercial for the tacos at Taco Bell that are now the Dorito tacos. And I'm like, why didn't I think of that? So I cruise over to Taco Bell, man, and I have myself a taco, the Dorito taco type, right? And I'm just sitting there mowing it down. But these people couldn't do that. Man, they could not get to this point. In fact, food oftentimes was often was very difficult to get at. But in our culture, man, we, we celebrate it like it's art and we, sell, we kind of savor it like it's luxury and we even abuse it. But in this culture, it was very hard to abuse it unless you were extremely wealthy. So for the first time, these people probably had a full stomach and they're like, this is awesome. Not only that, but more than likely, the people in their head were thinking, especially after reading the Old Testament, here's just some passages I found like Deuteronomy 30, Isaiah 9, Jeremiah 29, 30, uh, Jeremiah 32, Ezekiel 37. The purpose of the Messiah was to bring abundance. And so in their head, they're putting the keys together and they're like, this is the beginning of a revolution. This is incredible. He's going to bring, he's going to end poverty. He's going to restore justice. He's going to usher into the kingdom. It's going to be another golden era. And we're going to be fed. So they all get in their boats and they go after him and they get there and they look at Jesus. It's like, dude, you can't leave us hanging. If you leave, we need to know. And look what Jesus says to him. Look at verse 26. I love Jesus. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, or listen to me. I say to you that you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. You're not after me for me. You're after me for what you can get. Let's be honest with each other. These signs that he talks about, that they, he says, you saw the signs, the signs all throughout John, all these signs and witnesses and testimony, what they were to do was to point towards the greater reality of Jesus, their need of Jesus and, and their longing for Jesus. But what he said is all those signs taught you is, is that somehow I am a walking, moving Chef Boyardee. That's what you think. In fact, he's going to even take it a little further. Verse 27. Do not labor for food that perishes, he says, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Now here's what he's doing. He's now coming in with their wrong view of who he is, and Jesus is going to pull back his, his, his kind of the robe of who he is a little bit and show them more accurately who he is. He's, he's giving them a more and more accurate picture. He says, you seek me for these reasons, but when he comes to verse 27, he's like, listen to me, you don't need to come after food that perishes. You have a greater need than food that perishes. You have a need for something that only I can give you and you can't get anywhere else because your major problem isn't a physical problem. Your major problem is a spiritual problem. And so he's setting the work for this. And there's an irony inside of verse 27 when he talks about this idea of work for food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. So I'm to work for something that the Son of Man will just give me. It's almost a paradox. And he's going to explain what this work is. He goes on in verse 20, uh, <coughs> excuse me, verse uh, 28. The people then said, well, great, well then what work must we do or what must we do to be doing the works of God? And I love this. This is what they do. So they're sitting there thinking. Jesus comes in and says, well, there's this work that you're going to need to do that's not working for food that perishes, but a work for the, this unique food that I'm going to give you. And they go, okay, well, tell us. What is it? So they pull out their little pad, and they're going to make a checklist because they want to make sure they get this list correctly. What are we supposed to do? And this is what happened with the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. He comes up to Jesus, and he says, well, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus then gives him a list of the law, and he says, well, you know, this and this and this. And he says, great, I've kept them all since I was a young man. And Jesus said, well, then sell everything you have and follow me. In other words, he went from a checklist to his heart. 
See, what they're doing is, is they want to know what's the bare minimum to be able to get into this kingdom thing because not only do I want you to feed me, but I need to know the bare minimum because what I want to do is have a little Jesus and I want to be able to put him in my pocket because when I don't need you, I need you to put it away and then I need to be able to go do my thing. So what's the bare minimum? And Jesus comes at them in such a unique way. I'm not after a checklist I'm not after giving you a group of things to do. What I'm after is, is I'm after your heart because I know once I get your heart, I have all of you. I don't want your checklist. I don't want to just give you food. I want to come in and I want to transform you. That's why I'm here. I mean, the best way that I think I can put this is, is around here, people don't really eat meals like together after church. But man, where I grew up, you would go to church and then somebody, and it's hopefully like the lady that made really good food, she would put together a spread for you and you'd get done with church and you're like, you didn't hear what the guy said. It was like, wah, 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 Charlie Brown's parents. And then you couldn't wait to get to the food. And where I grew up, man, it was like potatoes and, and roast and carrots and you knew there was going to be some type of pie and ice cream. And so it's like, no way, I can't wait to get over to Mrs. So-and-so's. Now, can you imagine today if my wife puts together that kind of a meal and then I invite a couple of you over and I say, come on over. We'd love to have you over for a meal. And we're sitting around and we're fat and happy afterwards and just talking life. And all of a sudden, one of you reaches into your, your pocket and pulls out your checkbook and says, how much do I owe you? I can imagine my wife looking at you. I'd be saying probably about 150. But my wife would be like, really? I didn't have you over to get paid. I had you over for relationship. See, in the end of it, these people that Jesus is talking to, they don't want relationship. They just want what they can get. See, this is the indictment of the church in the United States today. This is across the board. And I don't, there's nobody that is not coming out of this scot-free. It's this reality that it is about a relationship with the king of the universe. It's about this group of people called the church that now get to come into this right relationship with God because of the amazing work of Jesus and then join him in what he's doing on this planet with the hopes that others too will understand this amazing message. It's not about checklists. It's not about what he's going to give us. It's something so much more. And what Jesus is going to do then, if you look back down, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. Your work is to believe. Now he's going to explain belief here just a little bit, but he's like, no, you guys are missing the point. You're trying to make checklists, honestly? You're trying to figure out how to pay me for this thing? You've got to be kidding me. And so I love it. These guys, they still don't get it, just like all of us wouldn't get either. I'd be right with them. So it says in verse 30, So they said to him, So what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now I love what they do here. It's almost like they're kind of caught in a corner and they're like, this isn't going so well. Let's change the subject. And what they did then was is they took him back to this idea of a sign. They said, you know what, now give us a sign. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, hey, that's great stuff, this whole do the work of belief thing, that's phenomenal. But why don't you give us a sign that knows, so we know who you are and hey, let's pick one. There was Moses and he gave the people a sign. He fed them six days out of the week for 40 years. I got an idea, Jesus. Why don't we follow you and you can feed us every day? And I can just see Jesus at this point going, really? You're still not getting it? It's not about that. Now, the people would have thought this because there was a Jewish fable at the time about Jeremiah, who was a prophet, and he, he grabbed the manna right before Jerusalem fell, and he put the, took the manna out of the ark, and he hid it somewhere in the hopes that when the Messiah came back, he would provide more manna for the people. So there's this idea in which they expected it. And so they're basically looking at him saying, hey, I love the miracle yesterday. That was really cool. Now what we want is for you to duplicate it every day. We want bread from heaven every day. And look what Jesus says in verse 32. He then said to them, listen to me, or truly, truly, listen. 
I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven. You missed it. It was my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now he's going to take it now the step further. He's wanting them to understand, I standing in front of you are what you're after. You're not after all these other things. You're not after getting bread. You're not after, listen to me, you guys are all missing the point. At the end of it, what I want you to see is, is the most important thing is right in front of you right now. It's me. He wants to be crystal clear with them. Verse 34, they respond back. Well, good, sir, give us this bread. Look what they say, always. (laughs) That's good. Yeah, could we just have it always? Jesus said to them, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I'm it. You want my things, but you don't want me. You want my stuff. You like the things, the tricks I was doing to draw you to me, but you still want those. You don't want me. That's at the core problem of it. That's the core problem of all of us is that at the end of it, every single person in this room has to answer the question, do you want Jesus? That's what he's asking all of us. Do you want an escape from hell? Do you want just this nice, better life? Because I promise you, every single one of these guys that John talks about, they didn't come to Jesus for a life improvement. They came to Jesus, and Jesus showed them what life was like, and it wasn't always easy. It was hard. He says to him, man, do you think Moses gave you bread from heaven? It wasn't Moses. It was God. And now I'm giving you something so much better, but you want just the physical stuff, and I'm telling you, the physical stuff is not the important stuff. And so in 36 through 46, he, I'm going to leave that for next week. We're going to talk about that next week. But basically, he makes his point and then helps them understand just the grace of God in their life about understanding what he's talking about. But let me just show you a couple key things down there in verses 36 through 46. Look at verse 42. They respond back to him in verse 42, and they, they suddenly say this about him to almost change the subject again. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? In other words, that's just Joseph's kid. Not only that, but verse 41, look what else he does. So the Jews grumbled. In other words, they're asking for all these things that Moses would give them. And what did the Jews way back with Moses do? They grumbled. Now Jesus goes and offers them this, and what do they do? Grumble. And Jesus is basically looking at them and saying, you proved my point. The problem with people is not their external circumstances. The problem with people is their heart. I could feed you. I could give you all this stuff, but it doesn't change the fact that your heart is what needs to be changed. You can come here to Cornerstone and you can hear the preaching and the music and you can read books and do all kinds of things. But at the end of it, the goal of us is not to somehow cram you into this behavior modification. The goal would be that God would grip you and that you would see Jesus for the first time and understand who he is and you would begin to be transformed on the inside. That's what Jesus is starting to build here. He doesn't want just their externals. He wants their hearts. This was the whole promise of the Old Testament. When you look at like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, it was like, look, no, we're getting to this whole time in which this new covenant will come. And what's going to happen is, is that God is going to change your hearts and he's going to now stir you and cause you to obey his commands based upon a transformed heart. Jesus is saying to him, that's why I came. But look at verse 48. He repeats it again. Look at Verse, or verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Verse 48, again, I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and they died. This bread that comes down from heaven so, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life, give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, let's shoot really straight with each other. If Jesus started saying this to us back at this point, I think I'd be going, what in the world is he talking about? And in fact, this is what the Jews do. They're like, so we're supposed to eat him? 
Look what they say. Down in verse 52. So the Jews disputed amongst themselves, and they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Cannibalism? Jesus is like, you're missing the point. You need me like you need food. You just don't know it. In the same way you would wake up today and if you didn't eat, you would be hungry. He's asking this question up to them in a weird way, kind of in a roundabout way, is do you need me like you need food? See, it's the question all of us need to ask. It's the question that I've been asking in my own head this week is do I honestly in my head believe that I need Jesus, that I wake up and just like a meal at breakfast or lunch or dinner, I need him like that. If not, what it might tell us is that this is our view of Jesus. I just need him when I need him. Do I need him like I need a relationship, like I I know him and want to be with him? Because that's why Jesus came. He came that we might commune with him and, and have fellowship with him. But yet we turn him into just this little thing in which I rub him like a genie and when I need him at that particular point. He's going after them. There's three things that I was just thinking about that I think they missed in all of it. In verse 51, he says this statement, look, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's saying to him, I didn't give my power to triumph over the Romans. The Romans are piddly. You think that's the problem? Your problem is sin and death and Satan. And let me tell you something, in a year and a half or so, I'm gonna kick them to the curb. I'm gonna defeat sin. I'm gonna defeat Satan. I'm gonna defeat death. In other words, I'm gonna defeat the greatest enemy that man has ever faced. Tell me, Rome is nothing. The other thing they missed off of it is, is he says to them, you don't see me, you don't see me that I am your food. It's not me, it's not my gifts that your soul needs. You need me. They also missed, and Jesus is building this case for the reality that I'm gonna have to die to accomplish this. You need me to die. And the point of making bread, as it were, out of nothing, like God making manna, is that the Son of God has come into this world to give you bread but a bread not like you're thinking. He wants to be that bread. In other words, what Jesus is doing to them is he's telling them, unless you feed on me, you won't have life. So here they are arguing amongst one another. What did he say? I don't understand what he's talking about. That's weird. I'm not gonna eat him. Are you gonna eat him? So it's almost as if Jesus knew this. So it says in verse 53, Jesus said to them, and I love this. Here they are going, I'm not gonna, this is cannibalism. What's he talking about? And Jesus takes and just blows their mind. Watch this next part. This part is hilarious. I started laughing the first time I got this. He says, truly, truly, they're talking about cannibalism. Then listen to me. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. (laughs) Now they're going, crazy it's almost like he's going fine you want to go there I'll go with you you're right you're right it is kind of a form of cannibalism let me go with you he goes on verse 54 and he talks about this idea that look not only that but I will raise you on the last day look what he says in verse 54 whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him on the last day And then he comes to verses 55 and 56 to kind of even add more to it. He says, look, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, that person abides in me and I in him as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Now I can just see them at this time. Their heads must have been about ready to explode. But Jesus is trying to get to something that's so important. Now let me show you something up on the screen. The verse that we're looking at that is kind of weird is this idea of whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Now what he's doing is, is back earlier in verse 40, you can throw verse 40 up, he kind of already told them this very thing. Look at the next one in verse 40. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Now look at the first part. Look what he says, whoever. Look at verse 40. Everyone who. 
right? Feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood. Look at the next part. Looks on the son and believes in him. Has what? Eternal life. Look at the next part. Should have eternal life. The top one, and I will raise him up on the last day. And look at the bottom one, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, he's not throwing out cannibalism, but what he's trying to talk is, he's, and leave that up for just a second, he's trying to help us understand what, we, what he means when he says we must believe. He's not talking about mental assent to just the reality of, oh, yeah, Jesus, yeah, he came, he died, he was buried, he rose again, he went back to the Father, he's coming back, and he's going to take all those that say this wonder prayer with him at the very end of it. He's not talking about that. When he talks about believe, he's equating it up in verse 40. In other words, unless you basically come to me and get everything out of me and rely on P and nourish yourself in me, that's what I mean by believe. It's not mental assent. He's actually not trying to freak them out. He's trying to give them an understanding of what believe means. See, and the reason I say that is I know a lot of you in here that, uh, that might have this wrong idea that just because I somehow believe that there's this Jesus is that, that I'm somehow now connected with him. But he's like, no, I don't want you just to give mental assent to me. I want relationship with you. I want you to come to me and know me. I want to know you. And he uses this idea of abide. I want to be with you like this idea as if you were to eat me. I want to have that type of closeness with you. He goes on. He says this statement. Verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He's saying, I can't give you the small picture of Jesus that you want. That Jesus doesn't save you. That Jesus doesn't offer eternal life. I need to give you the accurate picture of who I am so that you might know who I am and embrace who I am and then finally have life in me. I'm not gonna somehow lower this bar to somehow get you to believe in a Blinkies Fun Club Jesus or whatever it is. I'm just telling you this is who I am. And unless we have this relationship together, there is no life. I think it's fascinating that this happens during the time of Passover. They would have been a little freaked out because in Leviticus 19, they're told not to drink blood. That's something that was big for them. But, but Jesus is trying to convey again something so much bigger, a spiritual issue to them. He's talking about the Paschal lamb that they would take and they would slaughter. And it would cause, it was this cause or this representation of God passing over their sins. And, and then the next, on that particular day, they were supposed to then, after slaughtering it and cooking it, they were to eat it. And he's looking at them and saying, that lamb that you would cook and that you would eat after they, you would slaughter it and its blood would be given as this way in which God passes over you. I'm that lamb. That's who I am. Eat me. Enjoy me, know me, walk with me, look to me. Then in verse 60, we come to it. It says, when his disciples heard it, they said, this is hard, who can listen to it? And then in verse 66, after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They wanted a certain Jesus, and Jesus didn't give it to them. He gave them the truth. Now, the one that's always though, been interesting to me is you had this few that walked away, but look at verse 67. I love this statement. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go as well? I mean, can you imagine being there? You're the 12, and first of all, you're like, what's this drink the blood and eat the flesh thing? And you're looking at it and going... And all of a sudden, Jesus squares around after talking to those guys and goes, do you want to leave too? <laughs> and Peter being Peter, I love this guy. God bless you. Peter being Peter, look what he says in verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where are we going to go? We've seen you turn water into wine. 
We've watched you go into the temple and drive everybody out. We saw you talk to the smartest man in all of Israel and absolutely blow him away. We've watched as you then came in and you dealt with this woman at the well and everybody in that particular town of Samaria come to know Jesus. We watched as you took this one guy and you healed his kid from a distance away. Then you grabbed this invalid who had been sick for almost 40 years and you healed him. Where are we going to go? Not to mention the whole feed the 5,000 men thing. That was cool. But I think the clue as to why they didn't go away is actually found way back in what I told you I was going to come to in 616. So go back there. Now imagine this with me. Jesus gets done feeding everybody and he looks at his disciples and he says, okay, you guys need to go. I'll stay here. I need to have a little communion time with my father, according to Matthew 14, 23. You guys go, and I will meet you in Capernaum. So he pushes almost in the way that he explains it in the book of Mark. He almost has to put them in the boat and push them away. So I can just see all the guys. They're getting in there. And so in verse 16, it says, When evening came and his disciples went down to the sea, they got into the boat and started across the sea of Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to him. So can you imagine the boat trip with the 12? And I'm imagining just because Peter's the guy that always was the guy in charge. You know, he's back there and he's got the wheel and he's steering him along and all the, you know, the wind's blowing just nicely and they're talking about feeding almost 15,000 people and being blown away by it. And then all of a sudden they look in the distance where Jesus had pushed them to and told them to go and here comes the storm. Why did Jesus have us go this way? It says in there in verse 18 that the sea became rough because of a strong wind that was blowing. In fact, if you go to Matthew 14, it says that the waves were beating against it because of the wind. Now, you've got to understand something. The boats that they went fishing in weren't like the big, massive ones we go out in the ocean in. It was like scary little boat. And here they are, and I don't know if you've ever been out on a large body of water when a huge storm came in, but it is scary. I'll never forget the first time with my grandpa and my dad. We were out on this large lake, and in the middle of being this large lake and this little just 16-foot boat, all of a sudden, man, the waves are huge, and I'm like about eight years old at the time, and I'm thinking, we're dead. And here's this little boat with these guys, and if you can just imagine for a second, I'm no doubt about it, Peter probably at that point took command. Can't you just see him? He grabs it and he takes command of everything and and he's sitting there and he's holding the tiller and he's got that big arm that he's used for all those years of being a fisherman. And as they're going along, his beard just becomes just absolutely full of foam as the water's coming over the top of it. And a loud, powerful voice, man, he's sitting there, trim the sails, all these, he's giving commands and the guys are sitting there with him going, what in the world? Grab the oars. And he's still pouring away and the guys are pounding for everything that they can. And on the inside, they're going, we're dead, we're dead, we're dead. And Peter's got that look, we're dead, we're dead, we're dead. You know, and he's just, everything is going crazy. And inside, he's like, why did Jesus tell us to go this way? But isn't it nuts that Jesus sent him that way and created the storm that they were going to go into? Anybody that ever tells me that I want to follow Jesus so that my life is easier, you don't know Jesus like I know Jesus. He loves to get them to the point where they're like, oh, what are we going to do? Because he knows that's the safest place for us to be is absolutely needing him with everything that we are. So there they are, sailing into the wind, sailing into where Jesus has told them to go. Because they're obedient, they're thinking to themselves, why did we obey? As they battle it along, it says it's specifically in the book of Mark that Jesus saw them. I don't know how it is that he saw them. I don't know if lightning flashes are going off and he's seeing these little knuckleheads, you know, out bobbing in the water. I think probably because it says it was dark in the very next verse, probably just the reality, he's just omniscient. He's a God that knows what's going on and he cares about them. He sees that they're scared. He knows what's going on inside of their heart. He knows, he cares. They're wondering how they're going to survive. And then in 1425, it says, as the night was ending, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Now, we've heard this story over and over to where it's not really that big of a deal, but can you imagine? I mean, right now, if I just got up and I walked on this water, you guys would be like, 
Hello. I didn't write, but now imagine the sea just going like this, and, and here's Jesus just walking along. Right? And all the guys in the boat, they're battling, they're going at their oars, going everything they can. Peter's sitting there going, we're going to die, we're going to die. And then here comes Jesus, and it says in there, <coughs> specifically Matthew 14, it says, when the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. <laughs> really? <laughs> faster, faster. <laughs> Run away. Some of them were probably thinking, I'm jumping in. And across all of a sudden, this, this darkness, here's Jesus coming to these men that are quaking in fear. And this is the statement he says, have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. That would have been in a loud, booming voice, and they probably would have heard it. And here's Peter, and he's sitting there, and he's holding everything together with the tiller. And this is what Peter says to him. Lord, Lord, if it's you... Tell me to come to you on the water. Really? I would have never thought that. <laughs> like that would have never even processed in my head. Instead, I would have been, <laughs> So what does Jesus say to him? Come. And I can just see Jesus out on the water, right? He's walking on it. He's just bobbing up and down. Come. And the guy, I just like, no way. And can you imagine Peter's first step out of the boat? Oh, would that have been a doozy? He's like sitting there and he's looking over the edge going, okay. And all of a sudden, I mean, I would have been like, I mean, I would have been Yes. It says he walked on the water and came towards Jesus. Can you seriously, just for a second, just get rid of our little flannel graph cartoon mindset for just a little bit. That would have been mind-blowing. The other guys in the boat are going, shut up. Can you see that? Oh, my gosh. Look at Peter. He's walking on the water. Knuckling each other, you know. <laughs> Pound it out, dude. Come on. It says, but when he saw the strong wind... He became afraid and started to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? It says, when they went up into the boat, the winds ceased. That would have been freaky too. Like all of a sudden, just to watch the whole thing just dissipate. And it says, then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Can you imagine that worship service? No music. Just. <laughs> and in John, it says, look down in verse 21. It says, immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. Do you want to know why Peter said what he said in verse 67 and 68? Look at the night before. He saw Jesus for who he was, this one that controls the wind. It wasn't just about making some bread. He saw him control the wind, control the elements. This was the God that he saw. And at the end of it, look, I don't know what sometimes you are saying, Jesus. And I know Peter would say that because I would have been there going, I don't have a clue sometimes what you're talking about. But I know who you are and I'm not leaving you. See, those of us in this room that know Jesus Christ, that have, that have come to know him, and not just in this mental ascent way, but that have come to know him and walk with him and see him do things, you are going to have to use a cry, crowbar from all else to get us loose. And the beauty is, is that you will never get us loose because up further in John 6, it says you will never, snatch, you will never be snatched out of the Father's hand. The Father has us. So why did Peter do what he did? He's like, look, I've just seen you too much, God. I didn't understand what you were saying today. I'm like them. But you are the son of God. And this is the whole point of John, that by believing you might have life. 
And I think there's three responses that are going to happen today. And let me just kind of walk through them. First one is this. I think there's some of you that hear me today and you're like, that's right. That's the firm determination that I want. Peter never completely understood. He never pretended that he understood Jesus, but he tenaciously held on to Jesus. Did he have a weird moment when he failed him and that, you know, at the point of his crucifixion? Yes. But let me ask you this question. Do you hold tenaciously to Jesus? Some of you in this room, I think, are going to hear what I talk about, and you're going to reject it outright. You're like, ah, forget it. No, I'm walking away. And no amount of explaining, no amount of me sitting up here pleading with you will change anything. But the one that almost scares me the most is found in verse 70. Peter just gets done confessing him, and here he is with the other 12, and it says, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The third response breaks my heart. See, I think Judas illustrates this response that's just this deception that I believe some people are living in. He numbered himself amongst the faithful. It even says at different points he even put his life at risk for Jesus. But yet at the end, when everything was said and done, Judas never really believed. And he probably even had fooled himself just going through the motions and trying to to almost become this, this genuine person that everybody wanted him to be. But in the end, he didn't have heart change. And as someone that has watched kid after kid and person after person walk away, this is my heartbreak. Is that some of you in this room might be just going through the motions and yet you have never come and tasted and seen that God is good. And so what we're going to do right now is is to finish it off, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I think there's no better way to finish it. I'm not trying to tell you in this passage that somehow today while we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that the Lord's Supper is going to literally become the flesh and the blood of Jesus, okay? We don't believe that. But we believe instead that it points to something bigger. And so as you hold these things in your hand, and I'm going to go ahead with the ushers if you could, just when you grab it, come forward. As you hold that bread in your hand, the question I want to ask you is, is do you want to eat Jesus? And again, I'm not talking that the bread is going to become Jesus, okay? Do you want that kind of communion with Jesus? Do you want to know him and walk with him? Do you want to see this reality of who he was? Do you want to see him as the one that took on flesh, this one that had the capacity to absorb wrath that was owed us? And by taking it, you guys can go ahead and come forward and start passing it out. By taking it today, What I want you to think through is, are you saying that I am now a part of Christ and he's a part of me, along with all these other people in here that claim to know Jesus? As you hold that bread in your hand, is that what you're saying? And so I'm just going to have Jared play on the guitar for just a little bit, and I want you just to hold it in there and ask the question, do I want to walk with Jesus and be enamored with Jesus and gaze at Jesus and enjoy Jesus and have fellowship with Jesus, all right? So the next few moments are just yours as you hold the bread in your hand. Over and over through the Bible, we see that God does care about our physical needs. He does. Jesus promised it when he was going through the Sermon on the Mount. He's like, look, your Heavenly Father knows what you need. But he knows our greatest need. He knows our greatest need has everything to do with sin and Satan and death and this decaying world. So when Jesus Christ enveloped himself in flesh, God became full man And he came with a strategic purpose in mind. With every blow of the hammer as he was nailed with the tree, he was defeating sin and he was defeating Satan and he was defeating death. Nobody had the clue at that time what was going on, but Jesus was winning. And right now his church is advanced, advancing. When he rose from the grave, he didn't raise as an apparition. He rose in the flesh again, a new flesh, a redeemed flesh, a a glorified flesh. 
And he looked at all of these people that were going to follow him and said, look, I'm going to empower you. I'm going to be with you to the end of the age to advance the greatest message of all time in which now I can have this relationship which God intended from the beginning with him. And one day he's not going to come back as an apparition. He's going to come back in the flesh as the victor. He's going to crush Satan under his feet. Sin is going to be done away with. There'll be no more crying, no more tears. That's our Jesus. And so as you look down at this bread, do you choose today to ingest him, to follow him, to look on him, to glory in him, to believe in him? And if so, Jesus said on the night he was betrayed, he said, this is my body, it was broken for you. He said, this do in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. Have the guys come forward with the, with the juice, please. But it wasn't just about his flesh. We've always said this, and we say it a lot in this church, whenever we take the Lord's Supper. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Is that the reality was, not only did he say, I want you to eat my flesh, and this, but he said, I want you to drink my blood. He was, he was laying out a reality here. And again, it's, this blood doesn't become, there's this juice doesn't become the literal blood of Jesus. So I don't want to say that. But it's a remembrance of the reality of what Jesus Christ was actually accomplishing on this planet when he came here. And so again, as you hold this in your hand, the question I want you to ask yourself is, is do you want to follow Jesus? Do you want to follow Jesus? So the next few minutes are yours. Paul talks about this reality that you were bought with a price. The price was the death of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, to where now, isn't it amazing to sit there and just think for a second that you were bought into a family, you were a child of God, you're a co-heir with Christ. You face a future that is amazing if you've come to know Jesus Christ, if you believed in him and savored in him and know him. We're a group of people that are all kinds of different. God didn't want to just leave us here in our muck, but he promised us the Holy Spirit who would come and empower us and, and, and allow us to be changed people that could go on this mission together, not as people that just sat in their sin, but were being transformed by the power of God. And one day, because of the blood of Jesus, we will see his robe still dipped in blood and we stand with him in front of the Father as he gives us back to the Father in this amazing love act from the Son to the Father. We'll be called children because of this amazing act. We will look at our Father, God, and say truly, Daddy. That's who we are. And so Jesus, when he took the cup and he passed it around, that's what he was promising, saying, my blood is a new covenant. I got something crazy for you. In the end, I win. But my new covenant has everything to do with changing you and making you different, not just leaving you on this planet to deal with life. And so if you're that person, if you want to be this one to follow Jesus and, and know Jesus and, and look to Jesus, today's the day and let's drink together. Jesus said, it's the blood of my new covenant. This dude remembers of me.